Good to go? Okay, we'll get started. Um, thank you for coming. It's good to see you again. And uh, tonight is the, uh, the last uh, study in this series on evangelism. Next week we um, will start a new series and we will announce that on Sunday. Okay, what that's going to be, we'll let you know on Sunday. But uh, to conclude our series at this time, I'd like to uh, just uh, spend our time together tonight thinking about, and if you see it there on your, your sheet, uh, the place of repentance in salvation and evangelism. It's an interesting question, and I think um, we could uh, all benefit from uh, considering what the Bible has to say um, on this matter. Um, for our own benefit, but also um, in respect to uh, when we share with others the gospel. We, we want to make sure that we're talking to them about faith. And there's another, the Bible says a lot about repentance. And so how does, how do we communicate that? Actually, you know, what do we communicate? And so uh, that's uh, what we'd like to share together this evening. So let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, once again for uh, the, the Word of God. Uh, thank you for the fact that there is bread uh, for us, nourishes us and, and feeds us and strengthens us and we're made strong by it. The, uh, there's the milk of the Word, the, the meat of the Word uh, as well. And uh, Lord, not only are we nourished by the Word of God, it be, it's food for us, but it's also uh, a spiritual weapon for us. And uh, it's like a, a sword and, and, and enables us to wage warfare. Uh, but it's also, Lord, in our hands. It's, it's, a, it's a, a message of salvation. It's a message uh, to share with people uh, concerning their, their lostness and how it is they can know Christ as their saviour. And uh, Lord, it's a, it's a message of rescue. And uh, Lord, I pray that in our hands, uh, you might help us to be able to share it with people so that they might be uh, truly rescued uh, from their lost condition. And uh, Lord, so these are our prayers as we uh, commence our time together uh, looking at this matter. Thank you that you've given us your word. We pray that we might be instructed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the, <clears throat> the notes that you have are... Uh, um, certainly a lot more, a lot less, uh, a lot less content in there than I had hoped um, in my notes. I have an, abund an abundance of scripture references, um, but I just didn't have time to do anything other than what we've got there. Okay, but um, I hope you will, I'll, I, will, I will share scripture references some as we go and I hope you can write these down. Um, but I think the, uh, the saturation of scripture is important because um, our concern is what the Bible says, uh, what the Bible says, that we can take one verse of Scripture and one verse of Scripture and one verse of Scripture and think we've got what the Bible says. The Bible, the Bible um, is a lot, lot bigger than one verse or just one thing. There are various themes. We know what the, the whole of Scripture says uh, and uh, seek by the help of God to bring it all together. First, let's think about the, uh, the importance of repentance. Repentance is a very prominent subject in scriptures the word itself of repent um, noun or repentance the verb the word itself is uh, found over 110 times in the bible that's the word itself and the concept behind it that is of people needing to turn to god okay people needing to turn away from sin people needing to turn back to god that's like one of the major themes of the Bible from beginning to end. Okay? The Bible is all about that. How, how it is that people can be turned to God for salvation. And so uh, it's an important concept there in the scriptures. And there are many verses that emphasize the preaching of repentance. Repentance was the primary message of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, when you think about what God called them to do. Uh, God called them to preach to people who were going astray and they were calling the people back. They were preaching repentance. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 10. 
2 Kings 17.13, Jeremiah 8.6, Ezekiel 14.6. You, you won't get them all, but if you can, what, uh, get what you can. Um, Ezekiel 18 verse 30, I'll read this one. Therefore I judge you, a house of Israel, this is Ezekiel the prophet, the Lord speaking through him, every one according to his way, saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Turn from your transgressions, so iniquity is not your, you're going the wrong direction with your sin. You need to turn, you need to leave that and turn back to the Lord. Uh, as a the theme of John the Baptist's preaching, Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after his baptism, Jesus' first sermon was on repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time began Jesus to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John. Now, it was a topic that he preached upon repeatedly. Luke 13, 3 and 5. Nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 3. Verse 5. Nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then there's Luke 15, Luke 16, Luke 17. Just a, a handful of verses from Luke's gospel as an example. Jesus preached on repentance repeatedly. Jesus sent out his disciples to preach. Uh, sorry, when Jesus sent his, uh, his disciples to preach, he commanded them to preach repentance. His great commission is a command to preach repentance all over the world. Uh, Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name above among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And in obedience to that great commission on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached repentance. Acts 2.38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repentance was also was fundamental to the preaching of Paul too. Acts 20.21, 20, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 26, 20. But he showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do, meet, do works meet for repentance. The change to the New Testament dispensation is not or has not made repentance unnecessary in this age it's definitely a command to all men acts 17:30 says that times of ignorance god winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent paul said that at athens which was a, a long way away from a jewish community god commands all men everywhere to repent indeed the burden on the heart of god the burden on the heart of God is that people should repent. Second, uh, 2 Peter 3.9 God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is something that heaven is supremely interested in. Luke 5 verse 7 I say unto you, there should be joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. And failure to abide by God's command to repent will lead to eternal damnation. Luke 13, 3 and 5. I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. In other words, in other words, repentance is essential for salvation. No repentance, no salvation. That's how important it is. Well, since repentance is essential for salvation since it's that important it's it's vital that we understand what it means so our second heading there is the meaning of repentance the first time the word repent occurs in the bible is where does anyone know genesis 6 genesis 6 uh, and you might think, well, that makes sense because that's a ch chapter where God talks about the wickedness of man so bad in the earth that he's going to send a worldwide flood. 
Yet surprisingly, God doesn't speak in Genesis 6 about man's repentance or even his need to repent. Genesis 6 talks about God's repentance. Genesis 6 verses 5 to 7. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy men who have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. That's surprising, but it's not the only time that we're told in the scriptures that the Lord repents. First Samuel 15, 11, the Lord says, it repenteth me that I've set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Now, in addition to those two references, there are 14 other times in the scripture where the Bible tells us that God repented or he would repent of doing something, uh, repent of doing something that he would have done in the future. And out of those 14 references, in 11 of them, we're told that God repented of the evil that he was going to do. Now, we need to note that in those instances, we're not talking about moral evil. Or sin. We're talking about calamitous judgment. Okay, that's what it's talking about. God repented of the judgment He was going to bring, and so we have sixteen verses that talk about God repenting. And yet, the fascinating thing in the Bible is that is that the Bible says that also says that God will not repent. For example, Psalm one hundred ten, verse four. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Ezekiel 24, 14 says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. Neither will I spare. Neither will I repent. According to thy ways, according to thy doings. Jeremiah 4, 27, 28. says, For thus saith, thus the Lord saith, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. For this, shall, for this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, I will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. So there are three verses there that tell us very clearly that God will not repent. And there are two verses in Scripture that tell us why. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man, that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's one reference, Numbers 23, 19. The other one is 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. The strength of Israel shall not lie nor repent. That's a title for the Lord. The strength of Israel shall not lie nor repent. He is not a man that he should repent. So the reason why God will not repent is because God is not a man. In other words, God's freedom from the need to repent is based upon his deity. Being God means that he doesn't repent. And yet what are we to make of this? Because there's a sense in which the scripture tells us that God does repent. And there's another sense in which God obviously, because he's God, doesn't repent. And those two verses, 1 Samuel 15, 29 and Numbers 23, 19, are intended to keep us from seeing the repentance of God in a way that would put him in the same category as man. God's repentance is not like man's repentance. For two reasons. Number one, God is not ever taken off guard by an unexpected turn of events whereby he has to now repent, okay? has to change his mind, has to do something different. Um, <clears throat> God's never caught off guard. Like, um, I remember hearing just recently, Dan, Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, resigned recently. Um, and um, he was interviewed. And the, in the interviewer said, well, did, didn't, you, didn't you say that you would uh, stay in the, in, uh, as Premier until the next election? And he said, yes, but I changed my mind. Okay? Unforeseen circumstances change my mind. You know, things happen. Uh, time to bail. 
um, before it gets worse. Um, but God, that God's not like that. God is not a man like that. He's never taken off guard by an unexpected turn of events. Secondly, the second reason why God's repentance is not like our repentance is because God never sins like we do. In other words, God's repentance is not lacking, is not because he's lacking in foresight or because of any folly on his part. Rather, the repentance of God is his expression of a, a different attitude and a different action about some past or something in the future. Not because he's ever caught off guard, but because events make the expression of a different attitude and a different action more fitting now than it was previously. So God is not a man, and God's repentance is not like ours. And yet, here we are introduced in the Bible to the topic of repentance. And whenever something is mentioned for the first time in the scripture, we talk about a, a, um, a principle of first mention. Whenever something is mentioned for the first time in scripture, it sort of sets the scene for the rest of that topic. What is it? What was it? A change of attitude resulting in a change of action. Change of attitude resulting in a change of action. That's what God's repentance was. And that's what our repentance should be, certainly for other reasons. Okay, we lack foresight and we are sinful people. We need to repent. We need to have a change of attitude that results in a change of action. Okay, well, let's think about some of the words that are used here in the scripture for repent or repentance. In the, first of all, Old Testament. Now, there's, there's a couple of Hebrew words. The first one is nakham, N-A-K-H-A-M. N-A-K-H-A-M. It's the most common Old Testament word for repentance. It's basic meaning, okay, most common word for repentance, its basic meaning is to be sorry or sorrowful, to be grieved or regretful. Okay, this is the word that's used first in Scripture. This is the word that's used to describe God in Genesis 6. And the same passage, we're also told that God was grieved with the sin of man. Okay, there's a connection there between God's repentance and grief. The word means to be sorrowful. To be grieved, to be regretful. Literally, the word communicates the idea of breathing deeply or sighing in sorrow or grief. Same word is used, is used in Genesis a couple of times to describe families who are mourning the death of a loved one. Same word is used in Judges 19. When the Lord brought judgment upon the tribe of Benjamin because of the wickedness that they had done to the Levites' concubine. And it says the tribe of Benjamin, that actually says the whole of Israel repented. Nacham. They mourned the loss of all the Benjamites. This terrible situation that had happened. It says they repented. They, they mourned the loss. But in addition to mourning and being grieved over loss or death, Nakam expresses sorrow over sin. That's what God did when he looked at the sin of man. It wasn't his sin, it was man's sin, but there was, there was, there was sorrow because of sin. And it's the same in the case of Job, who declared from an ash heap, I abhor myself and I repent, Nakam, in dust and ashes. Old Testament people would often act out, they would, they would give an, there was an action to demonstrate their repentance. Sometimes they would smite their thigh, Jeremiah 31, 19, or sit on a heap of ashes like Job did, or put on sackcloth and ashes as the people of Nineveh did. Such sorrow over sin leads to an, an action 
not just the ones I've mentioned, but also the turning away from the evil pathway. That's what God wanted. Jeremiah 8, verse 6. There it's talking about repenting and turning away from the evil action. Jeremiah 8, verse 6. Thus, this Hebrew word, Nakam, teaches that those who repent will be genuinely sorry and remorseful over their deeds and at times will express their grief and their sorrow in, in action, some kind of action. Secondly, another Hebrew word that is used as translated repentance is shub, S-H-U-B in English, S-H-U-B. And the most basic meaning of this word means to turn or to return. To turn or to return. Hebrew scholars tell us that this word combines two requisites of repentance, turning from evil and turning to good. Okay, that's what the word means. Turning from evil, turning to good. It describes biblical repentance as turning from sin, 1 Kings 8.35, turning from evil, Isaiah 1, 15 and 16. Turning from transgression, Isaiah 59, 20. Turning from iniquity, Daniel 9, 13. In addition to turning from sinful actions, it also includes turning from evil plans plotted in the heart. Okay? Things haven't even been done yet. Not just turning from outward action, but turning from attitudes of heart. Jeremiah 18, 11 and 12. Such repentance, this word here, involves repudiating all known sin. Where there's been things that we're doing or things that we would do if we could. Things that we're thinking about. Turning away from all of that and... Turning to God to obey his commandments, Ezekiel 18, 23 to 30, uh, 21 to 33, uh, 21 to 23. So repentance is not merely turning from sin, but it's also a turning to God. Repentant individuals are told to seek the Lord, seek the Lord's favour. Um, put away idolatrous worship. Commit to worshiping God alone. There, are, I've got numerous references for those things. Okay, so let's come to the New Testament then. When we come to the New Testament, there are two Greek words that basically convey the exact same concepts that are involved in those two Hebrew words. The Greek word Metamelamai conveys the same concept of repentance as denoted by Nakam. Exactly the same idea. It describes regret in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 7, verse 8. It describes remorse from evil conduct. Matthew 21, 32. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then there is the Greek word epistrepho, which conveys the same general concept as turning as the Hebrew word shub. When speaking of repentance, describes how one changes his life's direction from sin and idolatry and to worshipping the one true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 as an example. Such turning to the Lord is used synonymously with forsaking a, a heart that's hardened through unbelief. I'll give you a couple of references here. Um, Acts 26.18 To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of God and to Satan, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Turning from darkness unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. 
and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Um, Acts 26, 19 and 20. Jot down that reference. Acts 26, 19 and 20. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem that throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. There's the action. There's the attitude of turning away from sin, turning to God and doing things as a result of such repentance. And then thirdly, the most common Greek verb for repentance is metanoeo, the verb, or metanoia, the noun. Metanoeo is a combination of two Greek words, meta meaning after, and noeo meaning to perceive, to know, to understand, to think. From the word nous, which is the word mind. So the basic meaning of metanoia, so metanoia, or metanoia, the basic meaning is to, to know after, in the sense of reconsidering or rethinking a past action or a past opinion. In essence, then, the word means a change of mind, a turning from one attitude or viewpoint to another. And specifically, in respect to biblical repentance, it involves, first of all, a, a change of attitude, a, 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 the viewpoint of coming to acknowledge one's sinfulness. Okay? Coming to acknowledge one's sinfulness. John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. That's Mark 1 verse 4. John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, if repentance is for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins, then those that came to John submitting to a baptism of repentance... They came acknowledging that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. Indeed, Christ came not to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5 verse 32. Such an acknowledgement acknowledges a fundamental change of attitude towards sin and a purpose of turning away from it. That's the action. And that's the, the inescapable meaning in Peter's words to Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verse 22. He says, repent of your wickedness. You've been doing wicked things. You're a sorcerer. Repent of your wickedness. Stop sinning. And Paul's charge to the Corinthians who were practicing uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. This is what Jesus requires himself when in Revelation 2, verse 5, he unites the command to repent with the exhortation to do the first works. Action, Revelation 2, verse 5. Such obviously implies a change of attitude resulting in a change of course. That results in a change of life. And you notice there some authors claim that repentance in the New Testament just means a change of mind without any implication of sorrow for sin or eternal resolve to turn from sin. But the use of these Hebrew and Greek words clearly indicate that it is a change of attitude leading to a change of action. Even the major Greek lexicons, that is a lexicon is a specialised dictionary, do not support the view that repentance is only a change of mind. For example, the standard academic dictionary for the New Testament is, long title, 
Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. Gripping title by four guys, Dauber, Danker, Art and Gingerich. Abbreviated, they're called the, the B-DAG. B-D-A-G, B-DAG. Okay, that's, the, that's what everyone talks about. Do you, have you looked up the B-DAG? Okay. That lexicon, scholarly, authoritative lexicon, does give the meaning, change one's mind, as a possible, the first possible meaning of the verb metanoeo, to repent. But it is very, so they say it, it means that, but it's very, very significant that they do not then list any New Testament verses as belonging to that particular and exclusive meaning. Rather, they put absolutely every New Testament passage under a second meaning, which means to feel remorse, to repent, to be converted. Then they go on to give many New Testament examples that metanoio means repenting from wickedness, from lawlessness, from murder, sorcery, sexual immorality and thefts. And these statements are consistent with the idea that repentance includes a conscious outward resolve to turn from sin. Other standard reference work makes similar statements. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says with reference to repentance, quote, it is a turning away from evil and a turning towards God. The Greek lexicon by Lau and Nida defines metanoia or metanoia as, quote, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. And they further explain that in the New Testament, the emphasis seems to be more specifically in the total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both think and act. Now, none of those lexicons say that the New Testament word for repentance, the verb metanoeo or the noun metanoia, should be translated and understood as merely being limited just a change of mind. But rather that it also, it means that, but it also includes sorrow over sin and a desire to turn from that sin, a desire to turn to Christ. That's the words that are used. We've considered the words in their context. We've considered their definitions. But now let's consider the elements that are involved here. Okay? As we consider usage in Scripture, we know we can see that repentance has three aspects an intellectual aspect an emotional aspect and a volitional aspect and so let's look at each of those first of all an, an intellectual element repentance involves a change of mind change of thinking in our mind in our intellect a change of view change of view with regard to sin, a change of view with regard to God, a change of view in regard to self. Intellectually, repentance begins with a recognition of sin. Sin comes to be recognized as personal guilt. It's something that happens in our minds. We, we understand that. God is recognized, come, God comes to be recognized as, as holy, one who justly demands righteousness. That's something that we understand with our mind. And self comes to be recognized as a sinner in the sight of this God, defiled and helpless, condemned before a holy God. You know, the scriptures speak of this intellectual aspect of repentance as you know, the knowledge of sin, for example, Romans 3.20. The knowledge of sin, we, 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 we understand with our mind, we have knowledge that yes, we're sinners in the eyes of a holy God. When we apprehend the wicked nature of sin, and as a result of that, humbly acknowledge that we're sinners who've broken God's law, fallen short of his glory, we stand guilty before him. That's the intellectual element. 
We confess along with David, I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Psalm 51. We humbly confess our need of grace and mercy. Ask for forgiveness. This happens in our mind, our intellect. Repentance involves a change of mind, a change of view concerning God and sin and us and Christ. Okay? And Christ. In our minds we come to understand that he is not an imposter. He is not a blasphemer. He is actually the promised Messiah. That's what Peter called upon people on the day of Pentecost. To understand that the one that you've crucified is Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah and that, that penetrated their mind. And for us we have to come to understand in our minds that Jesus is the Saviour. There's an intellectual element. But secondly, there is also a, an emotional element. This implies a change of feeling, as we've already seen in the, the, both the Hebrew and the Greek words used, mourning and sorrow for sin, grieving over sin, a desire to be pardoned, are all aspects of repentance. David's emotion was quite intense in his prayer in Psalm 51 when he's repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. He speaks of being of a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Psalm 51 verse 17. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Now rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed unto repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. So that's a good thing. That's a necessary thing. That's, a, that's an element of repentance. As we consider the emotional element contained in these verses we can see that repentance also includes a desire to be rid of sin. That's the kind of desire that David had in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Not only does David desire to be rid of sin, he also in that psalm and other places expresses a deter determination to forsake it. I will be sorry for my sin. Psalm 38 verse 18. There is an emotional element. Thirdly, there's a volitional element. This element implies a change of will, a change of disposition, a change of purpose, a change of direction, an action which indicates change. This is an inward turning from sin, an inward turning toward God. It's not turning from sin and turning to good works. Okay, that's what some people try to do. They feel guilty before God. And so what do they do? Try to be good. Okay, they try to turn from their sin and they turn to their good works as a means of establishing their own righteousness. But some people are commanded to repent from that. Repent from your dead works, Hebrews 6.1 says. And there's a change in disposition that seeks pardon, that seeks cleansing, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, as Acts 2.38. Far from being only a change of mind, biblical repentance constitute a desire to forsake sin, a desire to obey the Lord. That's powerfully illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. Okay. He came to himself, okay, that's, that's intellectual. His, his thinking was clear. What am I doing? Look at me. Look at where I am. Look at the mess of my life. Look at my father. 
I have this and my life has produced that, but I have a, I have a father. And there's an intellectual aspect. He came to himself, but then he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father. There's a volitional, makes a choice, there's an action. Change of attitude, resulting in a change of action. Think about the ministries of the Old Testament prophets who characterise repentance in terms of forsaking evil ways, forsaking evil thoughts, Isaiah 55 verse 7. Turning from wickedness, Ezekiel 33 verse 19. Turning from their wicked way, Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. It's not just thinking, it's action as well. In New Testament terms, Repentance is a resolute disowning of ourselves and our sinful way of life, embracing Christ and his justifying righteousness, or as a Christian, his sanctifying righteousness. As such, genuine repentance will inevitably result in a change of behaviour. Now, it's important to note that the behaviour change itself is not necessarily biblical repentance. Okay, the, the call to repentance is not a call to clean up one's life in order to fit oneself for salvation. Okay, that's not biblical repentance. And as we preach the gospel, that's not what we're calling people to do. That would turn repentance into a work of merit. And that would actually undermine the gospel of grace. Salvation is the gift of God's grace. The sinner apprehends it by faith alone. Ephesians 2.8 Precisely because it's impossible for us to satisfy the demands of God and be righteous by our own deeds. But while repentance is not strictly defined as a change of behaviour, a change in life will produce fruit unto repentance. Okay, will produce good works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved to do good works. That will be the inevitable result of a heart that comes to God in faith and repentance. So let's, let's sort of draw all these things together and see if we can just get some clarity. Putting all together, together number three. We may define repentance as follows. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now this definition indicates that repentance is something that can occur at a specific point in time. And it's not equivalent to a demonstration of change in a person's pattern of life. Okay. Repentance like faith. It's an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. It's an emotional approval of the teaching of Scripture in regard to sin. Sorrowing for sin, being, being abhorred by it. And it's a personal decision to turn from it, renouncing sin. Desiring to forsake it that I might... Receive Christ and have Christ instead. However, we should never say that someone has to actually live this outwardly changed life over a period of time before we can be sure that repentance is genuine. Or else, again, we're turning repentance into a kind of obedience, a kind of work that we do ourselves to merit salvation, which is contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. Man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans 3.28. Obviously, genuine repentance will result in that changed life. In fact, a truly repentant person will begin to live a changed life immediately. If, it's, if they're a newly justified person, okay, they've got new life in Christ, they, the change is going to be evident from then on. Or if we're talking about a Christian who's growing in sanctification, we've you know, had to confess something, we've had to repent, repent of something. From that moment, we continue to grow in our sanctification. 
Okay? There will be fruit from, that results from repentance. But we should never attempt to require that there be a period of time where someone actually lives a changed life before we can tell them that there is for them the assurance of forgiveness. Repentance is something that occurs in the heart. It involves the whole person, a decision to turn from sin to Christ. Now, why is repentance necessary for salvation? A couple of reasons. Number one, firstly, the very nature of salvation requires it. The nature of salvation requires it. Salvation is from sin. And we cannot be saved from sin while we're still holding on to sin in our hearts. When confronted with the gospel, one is faced with the choice between sin and salvation. One must choose one and repudiate the other. To choose sin, one must repudiate salvation. To accept salvation, one must repudiate sin. The repudiation of sin is the essence of repentance. Secondly, the very nature of saving faith requires that it be accompanied by repentance. On the one hand, faith includes belief that Jesus died for our sins. We're given us assent to that. And there's also a personal commitment to rely upon him, his death and resurrection for our salvation. That's trust. There's intellectual, there's volitional. Assent and trust. The point is that we cannot sincerely accept what Jesus did for us on the cross without hating the sin that put him there. Every sin is like another nail, nailed into the hands and feet of our Saviour. If we have a right attitude to Jesus and his cross and believe that, then we can't help but have a right attitude towards repentance and sin. On the other hand, faith includes believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, not just saviour, but also master. He is the master. He rose again from the dead. He conquered everything. He is master. And this is part of our ascent. Faith in Christ includes surrendering to Christ as the master of our lives. That's part of our trust. We're trusting our souls to him. We're trusting our life to him. Everything we commit to him. Accepting Jesus as our saviour and Lord requires the repudiation of sin because we can't be a slave of sin and a slave of Christ at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. Thus we conclude that faith is the specific means to appropriate salvation and repentance is a condition. Now this raises the question. If repentance is a condition for salvation, how do we explain those verses in scripture that mention faith alone as a condition? And many people focus all of their attention on those, the faith alone texts of scripture making faith the sole condition of salvation and eliminating repentance as a condition. Except that, that repentance is just a change of mind as to who Jesus is. Repentance as a change of mind and heart about sin and a commitment to obey Christ and follow Christ, many people reject that as a condition for salvation. People who take this view are part of what they call a free grace movement, which gives rise to what is often be called as easy believism or quick prayerism, which are both problematic. Remember, we saw in the, the parable of the sower that uh, out of the four soils, the first one amounts to nothing, the, the fourth one. Um, is fruitful, but the, the, the second and the third one, the second and the third one, both look promising, but they're false professions. They're false professions. We want to avoid 
false professions. Yet we cannot ignore and explain away the texts that talk about repentance so easily. There's an abundance of them. The fact that there are so many biblical texts which mentions repentance alone without faith as a condition for salvation. It's true that faith is often mentioned by itself because faith is the one act that is the specific means through which God's grace comes to us and saves us. Faith is the instrument, as it were, the, the, the vehicle, the channel. Faith is the instrument, the means by which we are justified, the means by which we are linked to Christ and receive the benefits of his saving work. Faith is singled out as the sole means, but not as the sole condition for salvation. Repentance is a condition of salvation. It's very significant for understanding the condition of salvation. The many texts mention only faith as a condition for salvation. Uh, for salvation does not mean that faith is the only condition. Any more than texts that only mention repentance are telling us that that, that is the only condition. One is linked to the other. The mention of one implies an understanding of the other. The mention of one, the other is implied or assumed. We see this in scripture. Fourthly, let's, let's think about, let's conclude by... I've given you this extended paragraph on repentance and evangelism. Oh, that's very bad. But, but I will give it to you. Okay, I will give it to you because this is a... I gave you a whole paragraph because it's very important. Um, that's, uh, sorry about that. Um, okay, now, um, I will read it slowly. Repentance is an essential element of conversion and is therefore an, an indispensable element of the gospel message. Not only is repentance mentioned alongside of faith in the proclamation of the gospel, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel, okay? We have several verses like that. But also many passages in scriptures call for repentance alone to lay hold of salvation. This does not contradict the truth that faith is the sole instrument of justification, but rather illustrates that the New Testament authors regard the relationship between repentance and faith to be so intimate that the mention of one implied the other. One cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ in faith and vice versa. Thus, while Mark in his gospel records Jesus' first proclamation of the gospel, calling his hearers to repent and believe the gospel, Matthew records it as Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. No mention of believing the gospel there. Why not? Because it's implicit. To repent is to believe. They go together. You can't separate them. Jesus would later characterize the objective of his ministry by calling sinners to repentance, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, and would demonstrate that truth by declaring, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. In the only record of the Great Commission in which we are given Jesus' own words concerning the content of the message that the disciples are to preach, Jesus summarizes the gospel as a proclamation of repentance and remission of sins in his name. That's what Jesus said. That's the Great Commission out of Jesus' mouth, Luke 24, 47. Repentance and remission of sins. The disciples were obedient to that commission. Um, as... The men of Israel listened to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. They were seized with conviction and asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter responded by calling them to repentance. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In his sermon on Solomon's porch, Peter concluded with the same call. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins be blotted out. Acts 3 verse 19. 
as Paul preached the gospel to the Athenians on Mars Hill. The, con the climax of his message was a call to repentance. At times of ignorance, God winked at, but now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17, verse 30. Scripture is unmistakably clear. Repentance is not an optional element, but an essential component of the gospel. Now, the other thing that you're missing from your last seat, I'm sorry, is uh, just very, very brief heading. We talk about the means of repentance. How does repentance come? How does it actually come about? <clears throat> there's, no, there's no risk that someone coming, the, the Lord working repentance in someone's heart is just that it's, it's an evidence of the Lord's work. If someone comes to a point of repentance and believing the gospel, that's an evidence of the pre-salvation work of God. There is a divine side of this. The grace of God. But there's also a human side of this. There is a command to obey. The command is for us to repent and believe the gospel. So on the divine side, repentance is an evidence of the grace of God at work in our lives. And yet there's also this, this human side as well. And as we think about the human side, the repentance is brought about by some various things. It's interesting that Jesus taught that his miracles or even someone coming from the dead isn't enough for some people to repent. Not if someone rose from the dead. They saw the miracles that Jesus did and they didn't repent. Okay, So it's not seeing his miracles or even someone coming from the dead. Then they, they, Those things don't produce repentance. But what does? What does? Again, it's, it's the, the work of the Lord... This is divine work, but also this human response to what? To the word of God. Okay? The word of God is something that brings repentance. People hearing the word of God, that is something that brings people to repentance. Preaching of the gospel, again, is something that God uses to bring people to the point of repentance. The word of God, the preaching of the gospel. The goodness of God towards his creature is also something that brings people to repentance. And sometimes that goodness is something that we might do. Okay, God uses, can use us to express his goodness to someone in practical ways. And someone is actually impact, touched by that, that goodness of God, and that helps to lead them to repentance. Okay. Sometimes the, the chastening hand of God, the, the heavy hand of God upon a person. Think about David, Psalm 32, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon him. Bringing Christians, a believer, to repentance. But also the Lord takes some people unsaved people through very, very hard times, which brings them to the point of repentance. Barrenness of life is something else that brings people to repentance. Romans 8, 22, this world is subject to vanity and people feel it. There's, the em there's an emptiness here. It's not the way it should be. There's, there's things that are missing. And it's the whole message of Ecclesiastes. The emptiness of life, the vanity of life, the barrenness of life is something that can bring people to repentance belief of the truth Jonah chapter 3 Jonah preached the truth of God's word people repented and then the last one a new vision of God Job had his eyes opened to God in new ways and he wasn't really aware of any sin going on in his life but when he saw God in a new way that opened his eyes to his own condition so there are definite means by which God, which God uses to produce repentance. And as far as we're concerned, as far as we're concerned, our job is to preach the word of God, to keep sharing the gospel, be an instrument of the Lord's goodness, showing the kindness of God to others, being ready to share the truth of God's word with people. And this is uh, some of the ways whereby God might use us to be his agents his instruments, working repentance unto salvation in people's lives. Or right, I'm sorry about that last page, but I uh, appreciate your patience. Well, let's conclude with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the opportunity just to uh, try to gather uh, so many aspects together uh, to bring them together this evening. And uh, Lord, I do uh, pray that there would be uh, some greater clarity 
uh, for some of us this evening. Thank you for uh, folk here who desire to share the gospel with others. And uh, Lord, I pray that you might uh, help us uh, as we seek to do, as we seek to reach others with the gospel. But uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us uh, to uh, uh, understand uh, the scriptures, uh, uh, what, the, what the scriptures say concerning uh, this very, very important matter of, of repentance. Uh, Lord, help us to be clear on this uh, so that we're giving a good account of the gospel message that people need to hear. Thank you that the gospel is the power of God under salvation to everyone that believeth. And pray that you might bless us uh, to share it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I may be able to...